Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Kyle? Doing great. It's great to have you back. We missed you last week. Oh, I missed you guys too. So on today's podcast, we are actually going to cover some of the same ground that we covered last week um, because there's basically more developments in the stories that we've been following so far, and we wanted to get a little more in-depth about some of these issues that we've been discussing. Um, so our first for our first topic this week, we are going to update y'all on the latest regarding the budget negotiations between Governor Kemp and the State House. On Tuesday, the day that we're recording, the State House advanced through a committee their budget proposal for the amended fiscal year 2020 budget. That is the little budget. And basically what they did with that is they reversed or reduced some of the cuts that were proposed by Governor Kemp, sending, I think, a pretty clear message that Governor Kemp's narrative about the budget cuts not affecting services, not being that big a deal, being all about finding new efficiencies. Republican lawmakers in the House didn't seem to buy that message. So we're going to talk about where those cuts stand and where this debate goes moving forward. Then for our second topic this week, um, last week, Luke and I talked a little bit about the positioning of Michael Bloomberg in the Democratic race for president. Uh, Bloomberg has been surging in polls at least a lot higher than I would have anticipated early in this race. And he's done so primarily by spending, by really outspending every other Democratic candidate running for president. It's been difficult to turn on the TV and watch a show of basically any kind without seeing one of his ads. Um, you know, listeners may know I actually live in Washington, D.C., and we are not really in the district a big competitive part of the primary. The District of Columbia votes, I think they're one of the last places that are going to get their vote. I um, mean, I've even seen his ads here. I'm sure that they're all over TV in Georgia and Super Tuesday states where he has staked his bid. But we wanted to talk a little bit about Bloomberg because we wanted to sort of assess this question of of what it means that he is so competitive. He's a former Republican mayor of New York City turned independent. Um, he's a wealthy businessman, which seems to go against what at least the progressive wing of the party wants to see happen with the party. Um, so we're going to sort of assess Bloomberg's space in this primary. And then to close out our show today, we are going to talk about legislation that was introduced a few weeks ago now, but is probably going to start to bubble up in the conversation around uh, Governor Kemp's foster care plan. Um, this is legislation that would allow uh, adoption agencies in the state to receive state funding while also explicitly refusing to serve either LGBTQ couples or other people who might violate the religious principles that some of these organizations hold. And we're going to talk about where that legislation sits in the context of fights over religious liberty that have really been a mainstay at the Capitol for the last five or six years now, and how that legislation might play in uh, regarding Governor Kemp's push to reform the foster care system. First, Megan, let's start with the budget here. So some highlights from today on Tuesday, the day that we're recording, uh, the House pushed the little budget through the committee process. And in the process, they uh, really made a lot of significant changes to the funding proposals that were put forward by Governor Kemp in the original budget proposal. Some of the things they did was they uh, restored funding for accountability courts. Uh, they also restored funding for cuts to medical schools for the residency slots that are used to prepare doctors to go into the field. They rejected cuts to the state's public defenders program, and then they reduced cuts in some areas that we've talked about before, including the cuts to mental health, substance abuse treatment, and autism treatment. Um, they restored some of the funding to county public health departments. They restored some funding to agricultural experiment stations, cooperative extension services. These are two services that uh, are big to people in agriculture. They provide a lot of research and support uh, to farmers across our state. And then they put some money in the budget to actually hire three scientists and two lab technicians at the GBI um, to deal with the backlog of rape kits uh, that have not been tested by the state. 
Megan, let's just start with your reaction to this list. Are there any specific funding uh, streams there that stand out to you in terms of the message that the legislature sent to the governor with this initial budget proposal? Well, you've already uh, touched on it, Kyle, the fact that these cuts heavily affect rural areas and the state house is telling Governor Kemp, no, you can't affect rural areas that much. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he ran on a platform that talked about how he was going to promote rural Georgia and protect rural Georgia. And this seems to be the opposite of that. So I find that pretty interesting, um, both from a tactics perspective on his end and also the fact that the House, despite being a Republican majority, did stand up to him and say these are these cuts are unacceptable. The ones that stick out to me, the House taking really positive steps all of these re- restorations, I think, are pretty positive, but definitely the restoration of funding for the medical schools um, affecting rural health systems and the uh, budget to hire the three scientists to help with the rape kit testing. Those are pretty big deals in my book. Yeah, I think, you know, f- from what I've read in the reporting and, and heard about around the Capitol Lawmakers really were not interested in allowing funding to lapse for the testing of rape kits. Listeners may remember that Scott Holcomb, a Democrat in the House, played a pretty significant role in highlighting the need to get to reduce the backlog of rape kits that haven't been tested and and why that matters in a criminal justice context why those those kits are so important in ongoing cases so i I think that that you know particularly I think gets at this message that when Governor Kemp has been saying, you know, these cuts are not a big deal, we've achieved efficiencies, we've gotten rid of landline phones at some agencies and found cheaper real estate at other agencies, that really obscures the policy cost to a lot of these cuts. I think on the the point about rural Georgia too, it's interesting lawmakers who have been around the legislature for, you know, seven or eight years now, they've been there at least since the Great Recession that decimated state budget revenue, um, and then the slow climb out of that hole. And through a lot of the budgets in Governor Deal's tenure, a lot of these lawmakers saw problems that needed investments from the state. But Governor Deal, through the last few years of his term, said, you know, everybody's got to submit flat budgets. Um, we, you know, the revenue growth is still slow. The economy is still recovering. Um, so it's just difficult for the state to make these kinds of investments. Lawmakers towards the end of deals term in the first budget under the Kemp administration did start to fill some of these funding holes, did start to really be a little more aggressive about addressing some of these economic development concerns in rural Georgia. And for a governor who won his election largely on running up the score in rural Georgia, for him to then immediately propose a budget that cut some of these investments that lawmakers had been working on for years, it's not surprising to me that this is some of the the money that got put back in. So I think that's a dynamic to watch going forward. This is the small budget. So you we're, we haven't reached the point yet where we're going to debate the full year budget um, and there's there's going to be more wrangling over these cuts in that budget as well. And that's going to be an even bigger discussion because he was looking to cut $200 million from the little budget and $300 million from the big budget for the next fiscal year. Um, so there still is a lot to look forward to on this budget discussion. Yeah. I think the thing that I find the most interesting about all of these budget discussions, just as a general rule, and not limited to Georgia, but all of the budgeting discussions I hear about is this constant need for Republican leaders to reduce taxation and to cut budgets and to save money and all that, where we live in a world where inflation is causing things to cost more. And we know that services cost money and are necessary. And so the only option then becomes, well, then you have to remove services, but these services are vital. So it It's just really weird and confusing calculus that I don't enjoy particularly. Um, And it always baffles me from a conservative perspective, these promises to cut budgets and save money when the reality is that we're all spending more money every day because of inflation. Yeah, and I think this sort of gets at something that I was thinking about on last week's podcast. 
Governor Kemp could have taken this as an opportunity to argue what might be sort of the purest vision for his budget, which is that reducing funding in some of these areas doesn't necessarily mean that these services won't be provided. They may be better provided by private actors rather than the state government. I would obviously disagree with this assessment, but he hasn't, it's been interesting that he hasn't made that straightforward argument and instead has sort of tried to obscure the effect of the cuts, hiding them behind relatively benign things that everybody would agree upon. Like, you know, agencies probably don't need landline phones in 2020 uh, because it is not 1980 anymore. The way people do business is different and everyone has cell phones. The state funds cell phones for a lot of their employees. So they're, you know, hiding the cuts behind those benign justifications instead of coming out directly and saying, this is a vision that I have for the state budget that takes more responsibilities away from the state and puts them in the hands of private actors. It's just been interesting that that has not been the approach because that would be something that would be more difficult, I think, for Republicans to buck the governor on. Whereas if you just, if you don't really make the argument that somebody else is going to step in, lawmakers who care about outcomes, particularly in rural Georgia, where private actors have not provided these services or have not solved problems of economic development in rural Georgia, uh, lawmakers are not going to, you know, accept nothing especially for their own districts, they're going to want to do something. Um, And even for Republican conservative rural lawmakers, that appears to be spending state money to solve problems in their communities. Right. Well, a lot of that sort of communication just seems to be business 101 to me. I know, you know, in, in things that I offer as a business, if there's something I can't do, but I can offer a workaround or I can often offer something to compensate, then I immediately come out with that, right? Like that's how you sell someone on your idea. And the fact that he didn't do that just seems really bizarre. Um, so the other interesting dynamic here with the budget, I think, is if you look at, well, basically the dynamic here is that the budget has to balance. And so Governor Kemp proposed a little budget and a big budget that balances. It it cuts in some areas, increases spending in other areas. When the legislature restores some of the cuts that Governor Kemp proposed, they have to find other places to reduce spending or increase revenues. The pay-fors that lawmakers found in the little budget that was proposed today seem to be more along the lines of some of the ideas that Governor Kemp had put forward, uh, defunding vacant positions, delaying implementation of some programs, finding other efficiencies. These these things were a little vague. You know, in one instance, it appears, according to reporting from Riley Bunch at Valdosta Times, um, it appears that they're going to delay the implementation of an electronic health record system in the Department of Corrections. Those things seem relatively small to me. This was the amended budget. It was a smaller cut. So I think that 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 strikes me as like kind of what we were going to get out of this discussion. I think the discussion shifts pretty significantly when you go to the big budget. Um, Because within the big budget, Governor Kemp is proposing cuts to fund teacher pay raises. And lawmakers, if they want to restore some of those cuts, it seems likely that they are going to have to get into the pay raises and reduce those to some extent. And so that's the thing that I'm looking for once we transition to that conversation is in this give and take, does he lose some funding for the teacher raises and and how does he react to that? Megan, there was some other context on the teacher raises that came out today that, that might also impact this discussion. Yes. So there's a new AJC SPIA poll that shows overwhelming support for the teacher pay increase. And that support exists even if the um, the increase requires a tax increase or a spending cuts. This was kind of a no-brainer for him, right? Like who's going to oppose uh, teacher salary increases? I believe everyone agrees that teachers are underpaid. And, you know, teachers are the ones that are tasked with educating the people who will lead us in the future. So education is very important. I think the thing that is most interesting to me, though, 
is that even if it requires a tax increase bid, it shows me that Georgians are okay with tax increases for certain things. And this focus, as I mentioned a little bit ago, this focus that require that where conservative lawmakers seem to think that every year there needs to be a tax break, that, that clearly isn't the case here. Yeah, and you also got this sense uh, from some polling early in the legislative session that found that Georgians would oppose a tax cut if it meant cutting spending, especially on vital services. The Georgia Budget and Policy Institute did some of this polling. We can link to it in the show notes. It is interesting that voters sort of have some of those trade-offs in mind. And I think it does sort of point to, you know, even Republicans might look at this and say, yeah, actually, we did find a little bit more revenue uh, by expanding the landscape for the collection of sales taxes to include more internet and app-based businesses. Um, And that was really sort of filling a hole in existing sales tax law for companies that should have been collecting it anyways. What I wish was more a part of the discussion was actually real revenue raisers, whether it's an increase in the cigarette tax or considering putting the state income tax back at 6%. I mean, part of the reason that we're in this budget crunch is the state income tax was already lowered from 6 to 5.75. Uh, but part of the reason we ended up in the budget crunch is that tax cut was basically spent before the revenue that state lawmakers thought was going to come in was actually here. And so that's why we're in this position to be making cuts again. Megan, do you think that Democratic lawmakers should be talking about an increase in the state income tax, maybe back to that level, or maybe putting it at a higher level for for the highest income earners in the state? I think that there's definitely room for discussion around that. But what I'd really like to see is Democratic leaders talking about other tax revenues that are so far untapped in Georgia, Um, the more controversial ones, such as legalizing marijuana and taxing that or legalizing gambling and taxing that. The only kind of gambling that's legal in the state of Georgia is the lottery. And there's so much more money or tax money that could be earned. And I understand that, you know, getting into something like that, especially because it could be an addictive behavior. And also the same argument has been made, although not with a lot of science that I can find myself agreeing with. Um, You know, both of these behaviors or both of these income sources can actually cause problems for Georgian individuals. But at the same time, other states are doing these things successfully. And to my mind, Georgia's leaving money on the table if there's interest in doing these things here. Yeah, so I think these are all dynamics to keep an eye on going forward. Um, We will return to this discussion as the House does when they uh, move on with the the big budget, the full fiscal year 2021 budget. Um, The other dynamic to keep an eye on, though, is as this spending plan moves over to the Senate, um, Speaker Ralston has been pretty explicit about his disagreements with Governor Kemp. They have both tried to say that they have an amicable, friendly relationship, but they do sort of disagree on some of these priorities. The lieutenant governor, the leader in the Senate, Jeff Duncan, he has not been as rhetorically opposed to Governor Kemp's priorities. Um, He's really been in lockstep with the governor on things like foster care reform, which we'll talk about later on. So it'll be interesting to watch if the Senate actually tries to align themselves closer with Governor Kemp's proposed budget, um, given that Governor Kemp and Lieutenant Governor Duncan seem to have a warmer relationship than the governor and the speaker do. All right, so we're going to leave the budget discussion there for now. Uh, Let's move on to our second topic today. So I have been really interested in the rise of Michael Bloomberg within the Democratic primary. On last week's podcast, we noted this new poll of Georgia for the Democratic primary showing uh, that Biden was leading the field in Georgia with 32%. Um, His struggles in the early states don't seem to have affected his level of support in Georgia yet, which I think is a bullish sign for Biden in South Carolina. But the other interesting developments in the Georgia poll are kind of under 
the Biden number, which is that Bernie Sanders is in second at 14.2%, but Bloomberg is in third at 14%, Buttigieg in fourth at 5%, uh, Warren in fifth at 4%. This poll also follows other polls that have shown Bloomberg more competitive in national polls, in some polls of you know relatively moderate to conservative states that are voting on Super Tuesday. And it seems to validate Bloomberg's strategy of not competing in the early states, then uh, deciding to to maximize his spending, spend on tons on TV and web ads, spend a ton on campaign infrastructure in states that are voting on Super Tuesday or states that are voting after. He's starting to staff up in Georgia. I believe he actually has the largest staff of any presidential candidate in Georgia at this point. Uh, Georgia our listeners will remember, is voting in late March. They're not voting on Super Tuesday. And what has been notable about his rise to me in the last few days is we've begun to see endorsements for Bloomberg trickle out among elected officials in Georgia. Lucy McBath has endorsed Bloomberg's presidential campaign. Uh, State Senator Jen Jordan has actually endorsed the campaign And the Bloomberg campaign is aggressively pursuing an endorsement from Michael Thurmond, who would be another important validator for Bloomberg in Georgia uh, and a important validator for him within the African-American community. Megan, what has been your reaction to Bloomberg's rise and his approach of spending a bunch of money, putting building up this investment and the resulting rise in the polls that he's seen? I definitely have mixed feelings on it, but let's start with the bit about how it affects Georgia specifically. Bloomberg is currently dumping money into the state of Georgia in a couple of different ways. The first most notable way is that he has donated $5 million to Stacey Abrams' organization, Fair Fight. Also, he is spending a lot of ad revenue in the state, which obviously is good for Um, the state just to have income coming in through those different ad agencies, through those different um, TV channels and sources and all of that. So that's all pretty positive for the state. But my big concern and like some of my issues with him actually do come from the fact that he is spending so much money to get his way to the top. Were I super naive and not paying attention for the past couple of years What I would be saying is, well, you shouldn't be able to spend money to win an election. What you should do is you should be able to get elected based on your knowledge and your skills and your ability to do the job. We all know that that is not how our political elections work anymore. So for Bloomberg to come in and spend a bunch of money and get to the top, like, yeah, it's not the greatest thing in the world. It doesn't give me the warm and fuzzies, but it's sort of how our politics work these days. You can... It it does come down to your ability to fundraise and your ability to spend money in the correct places. Like that is how you win now. That's honestly what all of our local candidates are trying to do as well. It's not just on a federal level. So with all that said, um, you know, he's able to spend a lot of money here. He's able to spend money in the right places. He's able to spend money to get his name up there and to start gaining support. But the really interesting thing is how his policies line up with different levels of support and different people who have said to support other candidates. Um, I'm actually a prime example of this. But before I get into all that, Kyle, I know you had a couple of questions lined up. Yeah, I I just have been thinking about the way in which some high profile Georgia political figures have commented on Bloomberg spending and his strategy Stacey Abrams, you know, you noted, Megan, that Fair Fight Action got $5 million from uh, Bloomberg. She got asked on The View the other day, basically about Bloomberg's spending, about the way in which he's approaching his race. And she sort of validated it, that this seems to be just another campaign strategy. She said that every person is, a, is allowed to run and should run the race that they think they should run. And Michael Bloomberg has chosen to use his finances. Other people are using their dog, their charisma, their whatever. I think it's an appropriate question to raise, but I don't think it's disqualifying for anyone to invest in fixing America. 
I don't know, man. I mean, I'm sort of of two minds on on this. There's Stacey Abrams, who also in this interview in The View said she was not, you know, quit asking her who she's going to endorse. She's not going to endorse anyone in, in, in advance of the Georgia primary. She has taken Bloomberg's money to fund an operation that is going to increase voter registration, make it more likely that a Democrat can carry Georgia, that a Democrat can carry other battleground states, um, because people who are unregistered are largely people of color and more infrequent voters who are more likely to vote for Democrats. All that, I think, is well and good. Another path that has been taken by another high-profile Georgia political figure is State Senator Jen Jordan, who not only sort of holds similar views about Bloomberg's spending and his investments in the state, uh, but also went so far as to endorse his campaign for president, basically saying that Bloomberg is the the person that Democrats should choose to be the next commander in chief, the next leader of the free world, largely based on his investments in political infrastructure in the state and her concerns that if Bernie Sanders is the Democrats nominee for president, that he is going to be a problem for Democrats down ballot. That's an important issue in Georgia, given that Democrats are within arm's reach of flipping the state house. To me, there's, there's two things there. There's, Taking, taking the money, spending it, putting it to good use, that's sort of where Stacey Abrams is, but goes sh- go short of endorsing his campaign. Then there's the comments on infrastructure, the down-ballot issues, and endorsing his run for president. What do you make of those two reactions from high-profile Georgia political figures? Well, first, I just want to note that Abrams's whole stance on don't ask me who I'm endorsing is very smart considering that she has basically opened herself up to being the VP for whomever receives the Democratic nomination. So <laughs> great, good, good, uh, good strategy there. It's I agree savvy. with it. All right, I, I agree with it. I'd be doing the same thing. Um, as far as, you know, taking the money and spending it, absolutely. You know, if he's going to give her money, I mean, I'd take it too. So her, her actions and her stances are all things that I very much expect. Um, the ones presented by Jen Jordan are a little bit concerning to me, not because I think that she's necessarily wrong, just because I kind of come at it from a little bit of a different perspective. I do agree that having Sanders at the top of the ballot would be not great for down ballot races in Georgia. But the thing is that Sanders isn't the only potential nominee. He is doing really well right now. You know, that's there's that's that's cer- certainly something to consider, but he's not the only person that Bloomberg is running against. And so I think that having that be your litmus test, it it's not as inclusive as everything that's going on as I, everything that's going on as I'd like it to be. Yeah, to me, you know, we've been talking a lot about you know, generally and in, in sort of the meta conversation in our politics about the role that money plays in politics, about its corrupting influence, about how it shapes policy and the policies that are actually on the table. To me, this is like just super short-sighted that it invest a little bit of money in infrastructure paid for by a billionaire, even if it flips the house for Democrats in Georgia to me, is probably not worth the price of then Bloomberg becoming president. And I, I mean, at least my own view is that he is not going to enact any of the progressive priorities that he's talked about on the campaign trail, um, or at least not ones that would address big systemic issues that are making the economy not work as well for working people or making healthcare less affordable. You know, he he has been a diehard progressive on the issue of guns. He has funded those efforts. You know, it's it's another reason that it's not surprising that Lucy McBath would endorse him. She was the spokesperson for his group before running for Congress. But if you think that money in politics has a corrupting influence, I think it is incredibly short-sighted to then say, but, you know, Bloomberg's money is okay. It's okay because we know where it's coming from when it's dark money from a super PAC that we don't know where it's coming from. Like, you got to have sort of a bigger vision, a bigger conversation than that. And if you feel like a big barrier to progressives winning in Georgia is that you don't have funding for political infrastructure, 
call to task progressive organizations around the country, tell them they need to invest in Georgia, tell them that Georgia is an important part of the map, an important place for them to be investing year round to ensure that progressive policies get passed. You know, take that path. Don't just sort of like throw your faith in you know, the first billionaire that shows up throwing money all over the state. It just, I don't, it's just like a frustrating way of looking at things to me. Even if in the short term, you've got to calculate who is the best to beat Trump and who is the best to help down ballot. I just don't really see the value in, in like hopping on the Bloomberg bus right now. Right. To me, to me, Bloomberg is the alternative to Biden, for those who don't want to vote vote for Biden. Like they're similar enough in their stances from from how I understand them. And it's just it's he he's just become the the to me his campaign is going to slowly start leeching the Biden vote and really truly has already started to do so. That's where Bloomberg has any amount of pull. Now Granted, there are a lot of people who, and I was one of them, who was saying, at least for a while, that I thought we were going to have to get behind a candidate Biden, whether I liked it or not. So if that's the case, then like maybe I should be filling that in with a candidate Bloomberg. But I don't think that that's the case anymore. I think that right now we've got other people at the that could be at the top of the ticket that are very viable and that throwing Bloomberg into the mix at this point is just, it's not really where we want to be. Well, and to me, the situation with the the spending millions of your own money really differentiates Bloomberg from Biden. I mean, if you have to sort of swallow your pride and vote for a candidate that you don't fully align with because he's the Democrat that wins the primary and that just happens to be Joe Biden, I think that's one thing. But to sort of turn a blind eye to all of the money, to me, is is it's just a completely different discussion. All this, though, Megan, it raises, you know, whether or not a lot of people are worrying about Bloomberg, even if he may not actually have a chance in this race. His his strategy is one that is very unconventional, skipping the early states and trying to play on Super Tuesday by spending a lot of big money. Um, what do you think of Bloomberg's chances as this race develops? Well, Kyle, you already mentioned kind of at the top of this segment, the poll from Georgia. So just to refresh everyone's memory, it's Joe Biden at 31, I mean, I'm sorry, 32.1, Sanders at 14.2, and Bloomberg at 14%. Then a massive gap, and then following him, Buttigieg at 4.9%. So his chances are okay. They're not fantastic. I mean, Biden still has the Georgia vote, and that's going to be largely due to the African American vote. if I am correct in the fact that a lot of people are, who don't really want to vote for Biden are going to start looking at Bloomberg more seriously, then he's got an okay chance. But it's not fantastic at this point. He's got a long way to go to catch up to where Biden is currently polling and, and to become the front runner. Now, nationally, he's doing better. Um, he is tied for second behind Sanders. But again, you know, Sanders is still ahead of him. We, there's a lot of information we still need to figure out what his true chances are, but we do know that he is a player. He is a contender. He's not all the way at the bottom of the pack, like, say, Gabbard and, you know, at least in Georgia, Klobuchar. Yeah, and this to me, I think, highlights whether or not people are going to start to delve really deeply into some of the policy positions that he's taken throughout his political career. He was a former Republican mayor of New York City turned political independent. Um, Tapes that have uh, had him describing in really gruesome and racist details the way in which he implemented the stop and frisk crime fighting policy uh, during his tenure as mayor, that has already kind of bubbled up among people who are really actively paying attention to the primary. To me, I think the big test will be when some of Bloomberg's less progressive positions start to permeate like the mainstream debate, not just people who are really into this refreshing their Twitter feeds every five minutes, uh, but, you know, you know, more casual, less attached voters 
who are going to be voting in some of these primaries, particularly as Super Tuesday comes, um, does Bloomberg spending give him the ability to set his own narrative in a way that no candidate can compete with? Or does more scrutiny by him being taken more seriously, by him polling better, does that actually result in some of his less progressive positions starting to dominate the narrative about him? Megan, I know you were taking a look at some of his positions and, and where he sort of sits for you. What what do you think of Bloomberg's positions as they compare to yours and and where he fits compared to other Democratic primary candidates? Well, before I get into that too deeply, I do want to call out that the stop and frisk thing could definitely hurt him if it managed to make it to be mainstream. But um, I think what you kind of mentioned about how he can spend the money to set his own narrative, we've seen that happen already, right? We saw that happen all over Facebook, all over social media, you know, at at that point, it does become about the money and boosting posts and getting your story out there as opposed to someone else's. Um, As far as his actual beliefs and his actual policies, I was super surprised to find that I aligned with him more than I thought. But to be fully transparent, I align with most of the Democratic candidates pretty closely in such a way that None of the polls or none of the little quizzes that I've taken would really help me make decisions. Um, so just to kind of break it down for for some fun here, um, I align 94% with Buttigieg, Sanders, and Klobuchar. Now, what surprised me is that Elizabeth Warren was one lower at 93%. But, you know, I part of it is also could be a slight error. You know, there's always a margin of error with these, right? I thought I aligned more closely with Warren, but being one percentage off from my other top candidates, you know, that's that could be margin of error issue. Um, I'm 93% aligned with Tom Steyer, who, you know, has now dropped out of the race. And then right behind him, 92% Joe Biden. So, you know, that's all within literally two percentage points. Then drop down six percentage points to 86% is where Michael Bloomberg is for me. Then 6% uh, below him is Tulsi Gabbard at 80%. So, you know, that's just some fun numbers to show. Oh, and by the way, the poll that I'm citing is um, from isidewith.com. It's a pretty fun poll to take. What I found it t- to be very interesting is that instead of just yesing or knowing policies, you can actually expand the answers and you can select yes and or yes but or no and or no but. Um, and that kind of gets you some really specific language that I'm wondering now if it is pulled from either statements or the websites from these candidates that ends up making you align more closely with them than you intended just because it's their literal verbiage. I'm not sure how this poll works, so I have a lot of questions there. Um, but I was really interested, interested to find how much I did align with Bloomberg on certain things. So one of the things that we aligned on was equal pay. The question was, should employers be required to pay men and women the same salary for the same job? We both said yes. And it wasn't just a yes. It was we both said yes. And businesses should be required to publish their salary ranges for each position. And part of why I feel very strongly about that is because of the work that I've done in diversity and inclusion. I find that women tend to be at a disadvantage if they don't have access to know what the salaries or at least the salary ranges are. So that's just something that's really important to me from recent experience. Bloomberg happens to agree with that, but so do many other members of the current field. So another person who agrees with that is Elizabeth Warren, um, which is not surprising. Another person who agrees with that is Pete Buttigieg. So some of it, it's interesting because it overlaps so much, which is why I really agree with most of the candidates within a couple of percentage points. Yeah, I I think that that highlights that it'll just be interesting to see if, you know, I kind of wonder with a quiz like that, it's been reported that Bloomberg's campaign has been pretty savvy in terms of uh, its outreach, the way that it's used advertising and targeting. Um, This would just be pure speculation on my part, but it would be interesting if the Bloomberg campaign sort of set up their positions in mind with sort of tools like these 
um, to try to look agreeable among people who may be a little more tenuously connected to politics who may take a quiz like that. To me, it'll be interesting to watch other Democratic candidates to see if they really push Bloomberg and sort of put him, take him to task on whether or not he really believes his things and whether or not he would use political capital to actually achieve them if he was to become president. Um, you know, I think you can sort of, you can look at his his spending and investments on on gun-related issues. I think he's relatively unmatched when it comes to that, but there's a whole other array of progressive issues that Democratic voters are going to be concerned about. Um, it'll just be interesting to watch whether or not he really stands by those views um, and if people take him seriously. All right. Well, we will be watching the Bloomberg campaign and all of the campaigns. Um, it's not going to be long before Georgia gets to have their say in this contest. So let's move on to our final topic for this week. Um, so there is new legislation that has been introduced by State Senator Marty Harbin that would, in its most basic form, allow adoption agencies to refuse to work with prospective parents if they had disagreements with with parents based on their own religious beliefs. And the most glaring example here is a religious adoption agency that would refuse to work with uh, LGBTQ couples who are looking to adopt children. Uh, but that's not the only implication of this bill. Agencies could refuse to work with atheists or or people of different faiths. So this really opens up a can of worms as it relates to this discussion and injects it into a debate that is coming over foster care reforms that are proposed by Governor Kemp. Um, but Megan, this is also yet another chapter in the ongoing religious liberty debate uh, discussion that seems to pop up every legislative session this year. What is your reaction to this bill being introduced and at least some Republicans' desire to come back to the well again on this issue? As you may imagine, this bill does not make me happy, mostly just because of such a potentially negative effect on the LGBTQ community who do have a hard time adopting children in many states of the United States. One of the arguments that has been made to say that this bill isn't that big a deal to the LGBTQ community is that, you know, there are other agencies out there that people can use and they don't have to use a religious-based agency. But honestly, this, you know, has the ability to kind of set a precedent for discrimination by someone who is affiliated with a different agency, but just isn't super sure about the LGBTQ community. Um as well as it just limits the ability for people to create families and, and for children who who need a family to find a family. I, I don't think that there's really anything positive to be gained by limiting adoptions when there are children out there who need good homes and people out there of many faiths and creeds and and, you know, just different ways of life who could provide happy, healthy, positive homes for these children. And Megan, this debate seems to typically center on whether or not the state would actually sanction this behavior in a way. I think that there are relatively limited legal protections for a religious adoption agency to currently refuse to work with an LGBTQ couple. Um, but what those adoption agencies don't currently get is public funding from the state to support state-funded, state-sanctioned adoption efforts. What is your view on whether or not these kinds of agencies should have access to public funds? If they're a religious agency, then they shouldn't have access to public funds. I... I I'm actually of two minds on this. I said that very strongly, and then I started to think about the fact that regardless of whether or not they are a public agency, there are kids who need homes involved. I do have a bit of an issue, a lot of an issue, with religious agencies receiving public funds because I do believe in 
the separation of church and state, which I realize is not quite applicable here um, from the way that the separation of church and state was intended, but it does give me some concern when I see state money that is given by people of all religions funding something that then becomes very exclusive and very discriminatory very quickly. Yeah, I mean, to me, that principle seems really important in a lot of contexts. It's not only important in the adoption context, but uh, there's likely to be a debate coming over school vouchers and whether or not uh, state funding for public schools can be diverted when a student takes basically their share of uh, public school funding money and takes it to a private school with them. Proponents of vouchers have proposed legislation that would allow that money to be spent at religious schools. And often those religious schools have policies that would expressly prohibit LGBTQ students from attending or not allow LGBTQ people to serve as staff at those schools. Uh, The Orlando Sentinel actually recently did an interesting look at a school voucher proposal down in Florida, which I think highlights some of the same issues here. So I'll, I'll link to that. But I think that this principle is something that applies beyond the adoption context itself. And um, for people who would not like to see public money going to um, organizations that are discriminatory based on their religious beliefs, setting this as a principle and not just the solution in, in one certain context seems to be important in terms of grounding this conversation. Definitely. And, you know, like I said previously, it becomes a very difficult conversation when you realize that these decisions affect kids who don't necessarily have a choice in the matter because they're minors or because they are wards of the state or because they are in whatever situation they're in. So that just that gets me right in the feels and makes these decisions incredibly hard for me. But I do stand by what I said in that it does trouble me to see public funding go to a religious institution. So I think in terms of politics, this will get interesting, um, sort of in a similar dynamic that we talked about with the budget, that the state Senate has had relatively warmer relationships with the governor compared to House Speaker David Ralston. One place where we've seen this warm relationship between the lieutenant governor and the governor is the lieutenant governor promoting having very warm things to say about the governor's proposal to reform foster care in the state. Marty Harbin, state senator who filed this legislation, filed it and said that this legislation has the support of many Republican leaders in the Senate. Um, I don't I haven't seen anything that suggests where the lieutenant governor is on this, but the Senate is the chamber that has championed proposals like these in the past. I mean, it seems like they will hear. Governor Kemp has been pretty unclear about how he feels about this specific piece of legislation. When you put this in the context of another chapter in the religious liberty debate, Governor Kemp did say on the campaign trail that he would only sign a RIFRA, a Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, bill that mirrors federal law. That's sort of a separate question, but he he had defined ground on that specific issue. This is a different issue and is a place where he does not have defined ground. Um, and this question of adoption and whether or not adoption agencies can discriminate has held up prior efforts at reforming adoption laws in the state. So it'll be interesting to watch where the Senate positions himself and how Kemp reacts to that and whether or not Kemp puts a stake in the ground on this issue because the House has been the place that has opposed uh, proposals like these in the past. And Kemp is probably going to find himself between these two chambers and having to negotiate some sort of a solution uh, given that this the foster care reforms that he has proposed seem to be a top agenda item of his. I mean, they led the state of the state address in January. So that I think is the dynamic that I'm watching politically as it relates to this bill and how it continues to define tension between the governor and the legislature. 
the thing that's just so concerning about any sort of RIFRA bill or any sort of bill like this adoption bill is that Georgia is already a state that is rumored to be discriminatory in these issues, discriminatory in LGBTQ business and also discriminatory in LGBTQ adoption. You know, you hear about things being part of the community through the grapevine that are hard to substantiate, but are, you know, you hear them so much that you think that there's at least a nugget of truth truth in them that it is difficult for LGBTQ couples in Georgia to adopt. And so something like this would just make it worse. This is something that it continues to be notable in, you know, Georgia business, which is, you know, Georgia, we've talked about it more than once on the podcast, how Georgia wants to be, you know, a state known for for doing business. Um, but when you have bills like this come up, you suddenly see the chambers of commerce. So the Georgia chamber and the Atlanta chamber um, immediately make statements opposing such bills. So clearly it's not good for business, which by that you know, by extension is not good for the state. Yeah. So this is another one that, you know, there, there probably won't be much immediate action on this bill. Um, it is one that I think will probably be fodder for the last minute moves that come after crossover day. Um, so that is when I would expect to hear more about this bill. Although, you know, the early signals that come out of how this bill progresses in the Senate, I think is also going to say a lot in terms of, whether or not there's movement behind the scenes to sort of tamp this down and say, you know, we're not doing this year, we're not doing this again this year, guys, or whether or not it, it might actually have legs. I mean, religious conservatives did get uh, a big victory for the issues that they champion in a, a near total ban on abortions last year. Um, this, you know, would strike me as a, as a less heavy lift than that issue was. Um, and so religious conservatives will probably be expecting Governor Kemp to fulfill um, another issue that they are championing. Um, so that'll be a dynamic to keep an eye on. About that, I think we are going to leave that there for today. Uh, so Megan, thank you for joining the podcast and telling us a little bit about your views on, on Michael Bloomberg and all that money he's been spending. As always, thanks for having me. It's always a blast. Alrighty, y'all. We will talk to y'all again soon. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.